You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, medical scams and quackery. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. I'm your host, Lauren Bailey, and with me today are Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Jem Newman. Hi. We are back after our impromptu January break, and thanks for coming back with us. As far as I remember, in the six-ish years that I've been on the show, that's the first time we've skipped an episode. In our December show, we teased a look at some of our personal influences. We're going to save that one for a later date. Today we're going to take a look at some more quackery and medical misinformation, both past and present. We've talked about quackery a few times on LUEE, but it's a deep well, and there's always something new to explore. First up is Ashlyn, who's going to tell us about Miracle Mineral Solution. All right. So this is a scam that's been around for a long time. So a lot of our listeners might already be familiar with it, but I'm going to give a little rundown of it anyway, because we haven't covered it before. And it's truly, truly awful. So sodium chloride is a chemical used mainly as an industrial textile bleaching agent and disinfectant. It can also be used at low concentrations for things like washing poultry in an industrial setting and vegetables and things like that. It can also disinfect water on a large scale and it can be taken into the backcountry to be used as a water purifier as well. So it's great at killing pathogens in water. So obviously drinking it straight up will also cure malaria, HIV, cancer, autism, and the common cold. Sounds good to me. Yeah, those diseases are all pretty similar, so I don't see why you wouldn't use one thing to cure them all. So also, thought the con also, men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, their severity range is very much in line with each other and yeah. why you would want to do that. Mm -hmm. So the con man behind Miracle Mineral Solution, one Mr. Humble, supposedly came up with this epiphany while prospecting for gold in South America. That typical <laughs> inventor story. <laughs> yep. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. You're perfect in every way. There's gold in the hills. While they were in the deepest rainforest, two of his companions became seriously ill with malaria, and there was no medical help to be had nearby. So, he had these water purification solutions. Again, he figured works on pathogens. We'll just put it into the people, and that will cure whatever is wrong with them. He dosed them with the water purification solution, boom, they were cured of malaria in four hours. Discovery wow. made. History changed. <laughs> it's really nice that we don't have any diseases anymore. Yeah, none at all. Since the time yeah, of his I, I, discovery. I, I don't know why I'm bothering with all this schooling. Just give them sodium chloride. Everything is fine. Although, you know what? One that I didn't see was diabetes. He's never, as far as I could tell, 
has not claimed to be able to cure diabetes with this. So we'll need to wait till Laura's segment to find out how to cure that. (laughs) (laughs) You just stepped on my segue. (laughs) So since the rainforest, Mr. Humble has not so humbly marketed his miracle cure for everything under the sun except for diabetes. For a while there, it became a huge thing in the world of parents trying to cure their autistic children by forcing them to essentially drink bleach. So Miracle Mineral Solution, or MMS for short, is usually sold as two parts. The sodium chloride plus an acid like citric acid that is supposed to activate the solution. In fact, this causes chlorine gas to be formed, which is highly soluble, and so it forms chlorine dioxide. Not something you really want to be putting into your body, either by swallowing it or, as has been suggested for HIV patients in particular, taking it intravenously. (laughs) Gem's face. Yeah. Intravenous bleach solution to cure your HIV. Cure you of pretty much anything. (laughs) Kind of a slight case of death. As one article that I read put it, this means that unless you are a piece of tile on a kitchen or factory floor, you should not drink this stuff. I'm not sure how a factory tile is going to drink it, but don't do it. You may like industrial music, but industrial chemicals do not belong in your gastrointestinal tract. Is the sentence I read today. <laughs> and now everybody has heard it. Well, and also, like, so we're usually on the side of just because it has a scary name or it has chlorine in the title doesn't mean it's poison. Salt has chlorine in it. But in this case, it is poison. It is just straight up poison. It's kind of like the difference between H2O and H2O2. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. different if you drink large amounts. <laughs> I saw a screen-capped comment recently of someone saying, oh, well, hydrogen peroxide doesn't clean anything. It's just water with an extra molecule. Oh, my (laughs) God. That changes things. (laughs) That changes things a lot. It's like, clearly, you either did not attend or did not understand chemistry in high school. And, okay, if you didn't have opportunities or whatever, that's fine. But then don't pretend like it's not a thing. Yeah, it's fine not to know stuff. Yeah, Totally fine. Just don't be like, I don't know it. Therefore, it's all bold. (laughs) On a good note. Okay, so when I did my cursory Google in order. Note, miracle mineral solution. Yeah, essentially. But so, okay, I am actually hopeful about this because when I Googled for information about miracle mineral solution, this is the only time in the many, many garbage scams that we have covered on this show that I have seen a clear preponderance of evidence when I googled this that you should not fucking take this. Like, every website was extremely unequivocal in saying, do not do this, it is very dangerous. Everything else we look up, vitamins, homeopathy, whatever, is just like, we have not determined that this has any efficacy, which for the average person looking at that, they're like, oh, okay, well, this guy figured out it has efficacy, so I don't need to worry about what the FDA says. They haven't seen the evidence. (laughs) However, so the FDA's link was the first one I saw. And the title of the webpage, so what you see when you Google it is Danger, Don't Drink Miracle Mineral Solution or Similar Products. Don't put that in your mouth. Like, I've never seen that on the FDA's website. They go on to say, Drinking any of these chlorine dioxide products can cause nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and symptoms of severe dehydration. Some product labels claim that vomiting and diarrhea are common after ingesting the product. 
They even maintain that such reactions are evidence that the product is working. That claim is false. <laughs> that claim wow. of like, oh, adverse reaction is just the bad stuff coming out is so, so frustrating. That's how you can tell it's working. You feel like shit. Yeah. I, I mean, like, it's hard too, especially with all of the talk that we have about vaccines right now to explain to people that like the fact that you feel like garbage after your second COVID shot, like that's an immune response that is indicative of your immune system working. And there are certain things that we put in vaccines, like the the adjuvant in a vaccine, the, yeah. the thing that makes your shoulder sore after that intramuscular injection is intentional. It's trying to cause a little bit of inflammation because that gets your immune system to say, hey, what's going on over there? And go and investigate. And the rest is vaccination history. Yeah. So but we know the, the mechanism of that. It's not just yeah. toxins are coming out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not implausible that something could make you feel worse on the way to making you feel better. Right. But in this case, that's not what's happening. <laughs> yeah. You're just drinking poison. <laughs> and the other thing is that even if there is an expected side effect, like some vomiting or something like that, it's to a certain threshold. And after that, it's seen as, OK, now it's causing more harm than good. We should stop this. In, this is in real medicine I'm talking about. But in these types of treatments, it's like, oh, no, keep going. Don't stop. Yeah. If you stop vomiting, oh, no, that means that it's you're keeping the cold in you. Yeah, I don't know if Ashlyn's going to go into this, but I remember reading probably six or seven years ago about somebody who had like intestinal shedding that was going on oh. as a result of MMS, shedding the epithelium. Yeah, just ruining your insides. Yeah. Isn't that just the worms coming out of your body? Yeah, and that's exactly what they claimed it was, right? Yeah, yeah we did that. We did that in a segment a couple uh, episodes a few ago. Yeah, that sounds familiar. However, Mr. Humble has said, Oh, Lord. It's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. That don't worry about what the FDA says about the nausea and the vomiting being a bad sign. If you're bothered by the vomiting and the diarrhea that indicates the product is working as intended, you can eat some cold apple slices that will absorb stomach toxins that have been dumped there. So what? he has a solution for wow. that. Cold apple slices. That is Not warm. <laughs> what? Well, because apples are apparently the sponge and, like, the activated charcoal of the fruit world. <laughs> yeah. Wait, is this something you've seen before? Like, apples, apples? in particular? No, I'm just making Oh, okay. Up. Okay. I was like, is this something that other people think is a thing? No, I'm just saying that's absurd. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Did he say what type of apple? He like, did not. Just cold. Better? Okay. No, I mean, there's no way Gala's better for anything. Come on. Should we go with a, with a pie apple or a yeah, eating you want apple? Yeah, nice Granny Smith. Come on. No, that's not very spongy. You clearly need a Red Delicious. Those oh, no. Maybe that's yeah, their own, that what down, they're made but, for. Yeah. <laughs> the, the filler of They're the medicinal. <laughs> that's that's the problem. <laughs> on another good note, this is also one of the only fake cures I've ever seen where multiple people selling it have faced legal action for doing so. So it, there does seem to be some initiative to get these people to stop selling people bleach to drink. It was really upsetting, though, actually searching for this stuff and finding all of the information was don't do it. 
And then the ads were for, would you like to buy four giant bottles of Miracle Mineral Solution? Like from all kinds of vendors all over the place. So it's super easy to get if you want it. Because it's easy to make and it's, it's available, right? Because it's used as an industrial cleaner. Yeah, they can't like just take it off the market everywhere because it is a useful product mm-hmm. for what it's intended for. Don't you put it in your mouth. Don't you put it in your mouth. Don't you stuff it in your face. Don't stuff it in your face. There are several cases of people being jailed or at least forbidden from possessing sodium chloride in a bid to protect the public from these claims. And one attorney general said of one case involving people selling MMS as a COVID cure, quote, we continue to protect the public from criminal conduct that takes advantage of the COVID-19 pandemic. Not only is this MMS product toxic, but its distribution and use may prevent those who are sick from receiving the legitimate health care they need, which is like a really decent take that we don't often see being talked about around this stuff other than in skeptical circles. Mm-hmm. So in any case, don't drink bleach. Don't put it in your veins. Not for COVID, not for cancer, not for anything. Just don't do it. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. As Ashlyn said in her segment, MMS proponents don't claim that their cure cures diabetes. Laura, did you find a cure? Oh, no. End of segment. (laughs) But a lawyer from Sacramento tried to claim that he did. Do you want to hear about that? I do. A lawyer? They know all about medicine. They definitely know all about medicine, right, Jem? Yeah, well, I, I hear that the LSAT is just as hard as the MCAT, so they're basically the same thing, right? Yeah, two things that are hard are definitely equal and give you the same amount of knowledge and expertise. That's definitely what the tech industry seems to think. Oh, like peanut butter and chocolate. It's two great tastes that go well together. (laughs) I believe I am quoting from the Journal of Medicine and Law in my segment, so stay tuned. I mean, those two things work together. However, one being qualified in one field does not automatically qualify said person in the other field. You still have to go and do all the work. This guy did not do that. I, on the other hand, am looking forward to practicing law in two years. I'm also looking forward to that. This is foreshadowing for five years from now when Jem comes to me. No, no, no. We will be on a road trip some several hundred kilometers from home, and he will say, Laura, I think I want to be a lawyer. No, I have thought about criminal defense. Jem got medicine. I'm the one who has the dreams of being a lawyer. Yeah, leave it for someone else, Newman. All right. (laughs) My turn to go into debt. Yay! (laughs) Has anyone heard of Trina Health? Not a little bit. Not before you said it. About 15 minutes ago when you told me the (laughs) title of your segment. Fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Or perhaps another name for it is the artificial pancreas therapy. No? No, I'm intrigued no. and would like to have one. I, I would love to know what you're imagining from this, from what I'm saying so far. I'm but thinking about that whole arc in Grey's Anatomy where they had like an implantable device that was supposed to cure diabetes. I don't remember what happened because I don't retain like storylines from shows, but I'm looking forward to finding out as I'm rewatching with Dave. But I'm pretty sure it failed because I don't remember them actually curing diabetes. <laughs> okay, okay. So an implantable device that effectively replaces your pancreas yeah maybe like some artificial islet cells in there making some good good insulin okay 
Now, is this primarily, yeah, so this is the cure for diabetes. So I, I guess it's replacing the endocrine function, not the exocrine function. Yeah, It's not going to like squirt out pancreatic lipase or anything? Oh. Okay. No, I, like I'm just saying the pancreas does a bunch of stuff. I know. I can I make know, up words too, Jim. Diabetes. We're talking about diabetes All right, here. all right. Well, so I'm picturing how Picard has the robot heart. I'm picturing one of those, but kind of like shaped like a dick, the way the pancreas is. It's not shaped like a dick. Yes, it definitely is. <laughs> I'm going to reiterate that I think it's like Krang the brain, but a pancreas. <laughs> <laughs> that all of those are much cooler than what it actually is. So the artificial pancreas therapy or treatment is a fancy out of proportion term for what this actually is. This is a protocol that was popularized and marketed and profited by G. Ford Gilbert, who is this lawyer from Sacramento. Another, there are several names for this type of therapy. One of them is called outpatient IV insulin therapy or pulsatile IV insulin therapy or continuous infusion insulin therapy. Essentially what it is, is a treatment where the insulin is infused directly into the vein, so it's intravenous, as opposed to the subcutaneous either infusions or injections, which is the standard way to deliver insulin for most people who are living with diabetes. This treatment in particular is what they claim makes it very special is that it's pulsatile. So instead of having a continuous infusion, it tries to mimic a more physiological approach where insulin is delivered in small bursts over a several minute period. And that's supposed to help with diabetes here. Everybody agrees it looks like a dick, Laura. <laughs> I don't know, sir, but it looks like a giant dick. Yeah. Okay, but if you took picture. that picture from like a different plane, it would be totally undick-like. Which picture are you looking at? It's in the current episode. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, you don't know if that looks like a dick? That's a you problem then. Okay. That particular one, but I'm looking at his screen and looking at other shots that decidedly do not look like, well, not decidedly do not, look far less like dick. <laughs> he chose the most dickish one to hey, prove a point. That one well, like of a course. Dick made of a corn cob. What? That doesn't, though. Like, dick made of a corn cob. What are, like, <laughs> what are we at here? Like, <laughs> okay. I don't know. You've seen sex toys. Impromptu dildos. Oh my God, no. That sounds horrible, you guys. Listeners, do not put a corn cob anywhere near any sort of orifice. Yes, so it's not your mouth. Everywhere. Anyway, okay, back to my actual segment. Oh, corn silk. Yes. <laughs> Be bad. So that's the premise behind this type of treatment here. And on its face, this isn't a terrible idea. Moving towards a more physiological type of medicine delivery or treatment is generally how we're trying to do things. Because we've learned a lot that if you try to help the body work the way it originally worked, it tends to work a little bit better rather than trying to change things around totally. So on its surface, it sounds good, right? And none of these things are things that we haven't heard of before, right? Insulin, we've been using that for 101 years now. IVs, that's been around for a long time. All these things, right? So you can get the sense how this doesn't sound like a scam, right? What makes it scammy is that, like most of these kinds of things, it doesn't seem to live up to its claims. And of course, there is a whole lot of money to be made by this lawyer, and a lot of people are being bilked out of money in order to do so. 
So where this thing starts to fall apart is, well, first of all, it's marketed as the cure for diabetes. And I want to be very clear. We do not have a cure for diabetes. Ashlyn had mentioned islet transplants or islet cells. And I think there are a few instances of that that have happened and people have either had no longer have diabetes and that it is not widespread. It is not yet something that's available to people. And I think there's still problems with it. And you also aren't side effect free because if you get a transplant, you still have to deal with things like immunosuppressant drugs and so on and so forth. So there are no, any of the things right now that are closest to a diabetes cure are not side effect free. However, Ford Gilbert claims that his treatment is completely side effect free. Uh, there are no oh, adverse wow. events. Yep. You can't take yeah. insulin without side effects. <laughs> right? Especially if it's infused directly into your bloodstream. Well, that and that's what I was them. thinking too. Maybe I just don't understand this scintillating. What was the word? <laughs> Pulsatile. Pulsatile. <laughs> uh, clearly, I don't understand what that means. But like, so I take insulin. I don't understand how you could possibly take enough insulin to last like several days or whatever it's supposed to be and not immediately die. <laughs> so you're right in that, though we do have some very long lasting insulins now, but you're right. No, right now we don't have anything where someone can take an injection once a week and be done for the week. But that's not really what the claim is here. So the way that this works is that people will spend usually four to six hours in treatment once a week ongoing here. And they will go through several sessions during that treatment of these bursts of insulin infusion. So every few minutes, they'll get a burst, however many units of insulin in directly into their intravenous line. And then they'll Doesn't get arrested dangerous and then they go through that. So they're also administered, they take oral glucose at the same time of course, to prevent have to. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And so the idea with this, or the theory behind this, which was first developed in the late 80s, is that by delivering the insulin intravenously, it has a better uptake through the body and higher concentrations actually reach the tissues, which then improve hepatic sensitivity and decrease liver sugar production and decrease insulin resistance and things like that. And then also increases kidney function, decreases blood pressure, a bunch of those things. And it's because of the theory is that by subcutaneous injections, like under the skin or into the muscle, the amount of insulin that actually gets into circulation and reaches the tissues is far too low for all of this stuff to happen. So you need to get it straight to the veins. So are they thinking like if they do this, they're kind of teaching the body how to do it right? Oh, no, you're depending on this forever. Oh, okay. This keeps sounding worse and worse. Yeah. So there is no end date, but eventually it will just cure it because they don't really talk about how, especially in type 1 diabetes, of who many of their patients are, the body just literally doesn't make insulin anymore. Yeah, it, like, you're not, not going to get any more. I can see a potential train of thought for type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, where you could maybe say, okay, this is it. But when your problem is insulin deficiency, that's a different story. And yes, like people with type 1 diabetes can develop insulin resistance down the road. We're learning that there's that I'm not an expert in type 1 diabetes. But that being said, like if you have type 1, you're, you still need insulin. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I digress here. 
What it's supposed to do, and one of their biggest claims, is that it's not only supposed to slow progression of complications, but cure them. Oh, cure no. Cure your kidney disease. You're just like, going to regrow those eye kidney, nerves, hey? It's going to go back. Yeah. It's going <laughs> to cure all your neuropathy. The it's toe's going to gonna cure... come right back on. Oh, <laughs> well, I doctor gave me a pill and I grew a new kidney. <laughs> But yeah, so they, looking at an archived version of their website, because their website is down for reasons that you will hear later, I want to read you just a little clip from here. So in the FAQ section, it says, do I continue to see my current doctor? Microburst insulin infusion, which is another name for the same treatment, does not cure diabetes. MII only stops or retards the complications of diabetes from getting worse, and in most cases, reverses these complications. Tell me how this statement is clear, please. I can't because it's not. Exactly. It doesn't. It only treats complications, but it reverses them. Wait, what? So you have the complications, but it'll make my complications go away. That's essentially what people are going to take from this here. It does go on to say that patients should continue to see their regular doctors and that though former patients dispute this. Most of the clinics that delivered this were independently run, very much on a franchise model. Mm -hmm. So the medical director would vary from place to place. And as we know, the marketer and main owner of this treatment is not a doctor. <laughs> well, This kind of franchising is exactly how multi-level marketing scams and even like dojos and stuff will like get around like they'll have the official line from the company right but then they'll train all of their like downlines and all of their franchisees right. to actually say something different right exactly so they do i'll get back to that in a moment here the last line of this this little section here as our experience is that the amount of medication required or the amount of insulin administered will be reduced the longer that the patient is on the MII treatment. So again, it's promising my diabetes is going to get better because if you're saying it gets reduced, I can then extrapolate to it'll be reduced eventually to nothing, right? That would be the hope. That would be the hope. And the false, false hope. That is the hope that many of the patients who've turned to this have gone to. Does it work even a little bit? Like, does it work for the week? So here's where it gets a little bit muddy. Or a lot muddy. Like I said, this was developed in the 80s, in the late 80s and 90s. And treatment for diabetes has come a long way since then. Incredible leaps and bounds are the types of insulins available, the treatment regimens, the testing equipment, all these types of things have come tremendously far from the 80s. So I should say too, the impetus for Gilbert to look into this and start this is that his daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at five and she started getting very sick. And again, I believe this was in the late 80s or early 90s. And at that time, little kids did get really sick really quickly. Like type 1 diabetes had a very short life expectancy in a lot of people. It was a really, really tough haul. And so he met an actual medical doctor, Dr. Aoki, who first came up with this protocol and used it on his daughter. His daughter got better. And of course, this is now a miracle. I need to market it to a lot of people and also make a lot of money along the way. I frame it this way because we always want to look at what kind of care and 
blood sugar management were people getting before they started this treatment? Okay. So for some of the individuals, and if anybody, I don't buy insulin myself. I know that some types of insulin can be quite expensive. I know our provincial pharmacare only covers some of the types that are less effective for people and make it more likely that they're going to have uncontrolled blood sugars. Even yep. though these other ones have been around for 20 years now, they just won't do it. But I also know that in other parts of the world, like including the United States, insulin is incredibly expensive and incredibly difficult to get an insulin that might work for you or a sufficient amount even or to get test strips covered. Like as hard as it is here, I hear that it's much harder in places like the United States for a lot of individuals who don't have great coverage or any coverage. We have to frame it in that kind of context. If you were not having great care for a variety of reasons, you weren't on the right meds or on the right doses, or you had other things going on in your life, whatever it was. And then you started getting more insulin and you also had several hours a week where you talked, maybe you saw a doctor, maybe you talked with nurses, you could talk a little bit more about blood sugars, or even just feel like you're being taken care of. You're probably going to do better, right? That's true. Mm-hmm. Like, you are probably going to do better. I don't have a study to say that per se, but this is the kind of thing. And former patients who look back on it, they talk about how that was part of what was happening for them. They had that community. They had a place to go. They believed in the treatment. They had doctors who believed in them, whatever, right? So when we actually do look at the few studies that there are, and there aren't a lot, that's where we run into efficacy problems. So a lot of the studies were done by this Dr. Aoki, who first developed it. Interesting side note, he used to be a business partner with Ford Gilbert, and then they parted ways in a non-amicable split, and uh, he accuses Ford Gilbert of just stealing his protocol. And Ford Gilbert says, oh no, I've improved it, therefore it's totally different, and it's not a copyright infringement. Oh no. This guy is a gem. Excuse me. (laughs) Sorry, hon. So... A lot of studies done by this one doctor. And sometimes you will see a lot of studies coming out of the same group. So that's not unusual, especially if something's new. But then that's where you need some outside replication. If you only ever see studies on this one subject coming out of one group and nobody else, that starts to be a red flag. The studies are older. They also tend to be small, short, and uncontrolled. Uncontrolled, like these patients' blood sugars. So, so of course, there are things like you can't not give people insulin, but there are other ways that you can control it. And even some, a lot of them weren't double-blinded and things like that. There just wasn't great protocols, especially to really figure it out. Some more independent studies did show that there were some changes to things like the rate of decline of kidney function was different in people who are on the regimen versus people who are not on the regimen. And they did, in fact, control for things like making sure that they were getting the same amount of education, the same amount of other medications. Blood pressure was controlled with medications in both groups. So the only difference was the treatment. But even in those studies, the conclusions say, yes, there was a difference, but there wasn't a difference in all parameters. And we can't say that it was definitively this. So it's very oh. <laughs> ambiguous and it's re- it, there's no conclusiveness to it. It's like, yes, we see something happened. We don't have any evidence to show it. And there's not a lot of evidence behind this. And this whole story ends up turning into one of those whole, oh, it's the cure they don't want you to know about because it would put all the endocrinologists out of business type of stories. And like I'd mentioned, some Yeah, patients, it definitely would. Unfortunately, there are no other hormones, so. Right, exactly. But this is part of the problem. 
patients were told not to see their endocrinologists in some cases because they would tell them to stop. Yeah. And these are type one diabetic people. So a lot of people with type two can in fact be managed by family doctors, depending on their complications, their risk factors, et cetera, et cetera. From what I understand, people with type 1 should be managed by, should have an endocrinologist on their team. Even if they don't see them all the time, they should have that because it is a specialist type of condition. So telling someone who has type 1 diabetes to avoid their endocrinologist is a recipe for disaster. This is very, very bad news. These clinics were also known to not communicate with other healthcare providers, so not ask for medical records and find out even like what type of diabetes people have. Side note, people aren't good at knowing what type of diabetes they have. Really? People with type 1 diabetes know what type of diabetes they have. People with type 2 diabetes, because of old nomenclature, I'm, I'm doing a super generalization here, but this is just something I've noticed in my years of practice. Because we used to call it insulin-dependent for type 1 and non-insulin-dependent for type 2, there is a significant number of people who, when they start using insulin, say that I now have type 1 diabetes. Oh, no. This is not helpful because it is not the same pathophysiology. You you Mm -hmm. need to know what type you have and whether or not you use insulin is irrelevant. To what type you have. To what type you have. Like, type 1, you need insulin, but... If you use insulin, it doesn't necessarily mean you have type 1. Do you have remaining functional beta cells or not? Yeah, so that's just a side note. But you, So you need to have medical records, especially if you're going to be infusing people with a whole whack of insulin for hours at a time every single week, right? You'd think. But no, they didn't do that kind of thing. The one slight upside to this story is that... Though there was a lot of money involved, and though Ford Gilbert pocketed way more than he should have, it largely wasn't the patients who lost out in this case. And this brings us to the reason that Ford Gilbert and the Trina clinics have been shutting down all over the place. Back in 2009, Medicare and Medicaid in the U.S. decided that this was a bogus treatment and they weren't going to cover anything like it. Okay, and so subsequently, thing insurance plans like Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and other pri- and then private insurances also said, "Yeah, we're not going to cover this." So Ford Gilbert goes, "Well, this isn't the same as that old protocol over there. I've improved it, so I don't need to bill under this code, which I know is going to get rejected. Instead, I'm going <laughs> to break down every treatment into multiple things and bill separately for everything. So I will bill separately for an office visit. I will bill separately for an injection. I will bill separately for this and that and that." And so he got. Medicare to pay for a treatment that they don't pay for over and over. And these things are somewhere, they would get paid somewhere between four and $700 a treatment. So wow. it adds up quickly. That is so, so much money. It's so much money. Where this all started to crumble for him is that he, or where he uh, flew too close to the sun was that he was trying to influence a Congress person in one of the states to pass a law requiring Medicaid to cover his treatment. And he got in trouble for that. And then they started looking into his billing practices. And actually Medicaid and Medicare had caught on to this grouping of billings earlier and had started denying claims. But because of this franchise model, and people would pay Gilbert personally like 
$300,000 or more to buy these special pumps and special chairs and things like that from him. And then they would still have to do things like pay for the space, pay for the staff, all of that kind of stuff. So it would end up being that then Medicare or the private insurance would go back to the franchisees or the investors and say, you need to pay us back now. Whereas Gilbert walked away with that upfront fee. Wow. Yeah. So this treatment does appear to still be available in a few places because some of these private practice doctors, and in some cases not doctors who own these clinics, still offer the treatment. They no longer offer it under the Trina name. It is still not effective. It is still (laughs) not going to turn around your complications. The only time it might do that is if you were not well managed and you're now actually getting more insulin that you actually needed. Again, insulin is great if you need it, but has a lot of risks to it. It is not side effect free. It can cause getting the wrong amount or not having a safe eating pattern or exercise or lifestyle pattern to go along with your insulin amounts can be very, very dangerous as well. This treatment, if you come across something like this, again, if the doctors, if actual doctors knew about something like this, they would use it. They would happily use it all the time, but it doesn't work. And if you use it, and especially if you forgo other treatments, it can be really dangerous. You managed to get through that whole segment without calling it pancreatic dialysis. (laughs) It kind of, yeah, it is kind of like pancreatic dialysis in a way. It really, but it's set up like a dialysis clinic. You go, you sit in comfy or pseudo comfy chairs for a long time, you sleep or stare at your tablet, and then you go home. Like, what a huge waste of time. Oh. Like if they could just be getting decent care if it didn't cost a million dollars. And I read many articles by an investigative reporter named Cheryl Clark from 2018 who exposed a lot of this and told a lot of these patient stories. And her mission for exposing all of this is that right now in the U.S., especially, but in a lot of places, there are a lot of people who are living with diabetes. There is very little funding to go around and way too much of it is being wasted on crap like this. Think of how many people could have gotten just enough insulin, not Mm -hmm. not like more than they need, but just enough insulin instead of these people being paid way too much for these bogus treatments. That's my segment. Thanks, Laura. That was a really excellent segment. And I really enjoy how you were speaking about how it's sort of related to dialysis, because I'm going to talk about something related to your kidneys. Hey, listeners. Yeah? Yeah. I'm going to talk to our listeners about their kidneys. Hey, listeners. Don't drink pee. (laughs) Just don't. Yes, when people buy piss drinkers, they don't expect a freak show! (laughs) Don't use pee in your baking. Don't freeze pee into a popsicle for later consumption. Once the pee has left the body of whoever or whatever made it, don't put it back in. Don't you put it in your mouth. Uh -uh. I never thought I'd have to say this. I thought this was a concept that most people had grasped. Yes, I see you, golden members of the kink community. You shouldn't do it either. 
but this is a show about quackery, and I don't want my first hosting slot in like three years to get us an E rating, so I'm going to stick to the dubious medical reasons people are ingesting urine. The big one in the news lately, of course, is that urine is either a way to prevent getting COVID or a antidote for the COVID vaccine. Whatever angle the quacks are selling that particular week. Oh. It's also been touted as a cure for allergies, cancer, wounds, rashes, and jellyfish stings. Surprise, it cures none of these, and if you ingest enough, it can lead to infections and major kidney problems. Let's look, metaphorically obviously, at what urine is. Urine is a waste product produced by your kidneys, which are basically filters that remove water and unneeded byproducts from your blood. So while it's over 90% water, pee is also made up of all the stuff your body has decided it doesn't need anymore. There's a lot of salts, ammonia, broken down elements of your medications, those unnecessary vitamin supplements, and a bunch of other stuff that your body says that it's done with. Once the kidneys have sorted it, urine is sent to your bladder, and when your bladder is full, it sends a signal to your brain that it's time to take out the trash through your urethra. And then you pee. Simple. There are plenty of ways this process can go wrong, but this is the gold standard for kidney function. <laughs> your body is not a still suit, and you cannot rehydrate from your waste products. Saline-wise, drinking pee is like drinking really bad seawater. It has a much more concentrated salt content than potable water, and to process salt, your kidneys require water. water. Yep. Drinking pee creates a higher net salt content in your waste product, dehydrating you more quickly. So why does the myth persist that drinking pee is some sort of panacea? Partly bad science, and partly an appeal to tradition. Back in the long, long ago, people used urine for many things that we now have better solutions for. It's full of ammonia, so it was good for bleaching leather and wool. In ancient Rome, this ammonia was used for whitening teeth. Don't do that. Don't put it in your mouth. It also worked as a mordant to set colors with dyeing textiles. It was used to make saltpeter to refine into gunpowder. Except for that last one, these are all excellent uses of a readily available liquid, and they've all been superseded by better processes. Someone lost a time in the great tradition of why the hell not probably thought, if it's good for removing rust from iron, it's probably great to remove all the rust inside me. Said person was wrong. Drinking urine does not make you purer. Drinking urine is in the news lately because of social media. Surprise. A recent Reddit post screencapped a Facebook post in a group called Urine Magic. The post was from a mum who mixed her own urine and lemonade into popsicles and fed it to her children and her children's friend. That is the worst sentence I have ever written. Oh. Social media will be the death of us all. This well, she, urine... She said that her, her daughter's friend's mother should be thankful for all of the yep. health benefits. She knows that her daughter's friend is now concentrating better and doing better in school than ever before. Yep. This Urine Magic Facebook group has over 37,000 members. Said group believes, and I quote... Urine therapy is a naturopathic medicine and practice of drinking one's own urine for health, vitality, and longevity. Said group is wrong. Drinking urine does not make you healthier. The mum in question, as Jem had said, was certain that the parents of her child's friend would soon notice a vast improvement in their child's cognitive abilities. Said mum is wrong. Drinking urine does not make you smarter. Due to this screen cap... Reddit exploded, which caused a bunch of news sites to have to quote Reddit usernames, 
which is funny to me on a deeply sad level. <laughs> That's always a good time. Yeah. <laughs> you slash come daddy 69 says. <laughs> Remember how you were trying not to get us that E rating? Yeah, well, you already like said fuck three times. <laughs> yeah, we can bleep those. So in addition to all the reasons I said before about not drinking urine, drinking someone else's urine is even worse. I mean, you're really at the bottom and then you're getting even lower. You don't know what medications or supplements these people are taking that were then passed in concentrated forms. Like this woman fed it both to her child and somebody else's child. What is in her body that is coming out through her urine? What bacteria and toxins were they exposed to by drinking the literal waste product of another human being? I remember there was, I'm sure, I've a very clear memory of a PSA for, not a PSA, but it was like an ad for Fight Club back when Fight Club was in the theater. And it was Brad Pitt saying, did you know urine is sterile? You can drink it. Did you know that urine is sterile? That's right. You can drink it. And bugs me so much because urine is often sterile when it's in your bladder, unless you have a cystitis or a pyelonephritis, unless you have a urinary tract infection. The urine should be sterile, as in it won't have pathogens in it. But the place that it's coming out of is not sterile, open to the environment. And just because something is sterile does not mean it is safe to drink. As we discussed when we were talking about Miracle Mineral Solution. I'm going to get yeah, into that. It's a in very a important bit, yeah. distinction. I'm going to get into that in a little bit, Jim. And we'll, we'll talk about. Your segment, Lawrence. Okay, we'll talk about the sterility of, of urine. Yeah. So I said earlier in my segment that some anti vaxxers are believing pee is the cure for COVID or for removing the effects of mRNA vaccines from your body. This last point is the belief of Christopher Key, who runs the anti-vax website vaccine-police.com. In a video, Key said that the COVID vaccine is, quote, the worst bioweapon, and went on to say that urine therapy could be an antidote. Christopher Key is wrong. Drinking urine does not remove a vaccine from your body. I was listening to an episode of Sawbones recently where they were talking about people who were trying to, like, detoxify themselves after getting the vaccine, like, take away the effects if they had to get it for work or whatever. My favorite thing that Dr. Sydney said during it was, I mean, I guess the only way you could get rid of the vaccine from your body is if immediately after receiving the vaccine, like, within seconds, someone just hacked your arm off. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what it would take. It'd have to go pretty high up and like, because it was right there the, <laughs> near the joint. Yeah. Like an extremely large punch biopsy, maybe. <laughs> like that whole, you know, the deltoid out. Yeah. yeah. But just like, I got the vaccine and then I removed it. That's the only way that would be possible. Talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. Right. Oh. While we're here, I want to clear up a few more urine based myths because who knows when we'll talk about pee again. Hopefully, never. You come here and pay a fee. As Jem was talking about before, about the sterility of urine, urine isn't sterile. This myth was probably based off of a 1950s study of urinary tract infections. During this study, urine with no signs of UTI were labeled as negative, since a UTI is an overgrowth of bacteria. A healthy urinary tract still has a healthy level of bacteria. It's not sterile. 
And even if it was, which it's not, the area surrounding, as Jem said, the area surrounding your urethra isn't sterile either. So any urine coming out will have a heaping helping of bacteria and yeast and other microscopic additives. An important don't thing to it. note is that just because you don't have an infection doesn't mean that you don't have bacteria. No. A lot of, we are all colonized with bacteria. It's just not pathogenic. It's not causing a disease in a lot mm-hmm. of cases. But yeah, there's plenty of bacteria in your urine. But if you don't have an infection, that just means the bacteria is not actively like invading your body and causing yeah. a, a disease process. It's not a bacteria imbalance. Yeah, it's the amount of bacteria that we would expect in a typical human being. Mm-hmm. Right now, gender. Yeah. Trillions and trillions of bacterium. Exactly. So many. The next urine myth, and this one, I hate it. I hate it. Urine doesn't help with jellyfish stings. Stop it, sitcoms. So depending <laughs> yeah. on the jellyfish... The urine, the sting, and a bunch of other factors. Peeing on a sting has effects that range from ineffective to actively harmful. Don't pee on jellyfish stings. Maybe don't swim with jellyfish? I mean, depending on where you are and how badly you want to get into a beautiful turquoise blue (laughs) ocean, it's kind of hard not to. That sounds like somebody's speaking from experience, Laura. (laughs) Laura cuddled a man of war. I didn't That's a joke. cuddle it. It just, it just grabbed my toe a little bit. <laughs> oh my god! Like I'm an yeah. actual man of war. Yeah, it was a like, Portuguese man of war. Yeah, holy was, shit! It was the first time was it? yeah the first yeah. time oh. it was man of war season. So you look out on the water and it's just these little blue, blue like actually like really cool blue like bubbles floating along the water. They're everywhere. And so we're trying to swim through them, but their tentacles are two, three meters long. And so the tip of one of them just clung and they just, they stick like super glue onto you. And even when you get it peeled off, it burns for a long time. I only got a tiny little bit. Another woman had got a lot more on her leg and the same time that I got it. And she was in a lot of pain. That's terrifying. Yep. That's why I never go in the ocean. Yeah, it's so hard because it's so warm and it's so beautiful. And you're just you're finally in Cuba and you just want to go swimming. You never go in the ocean because we live in the middle of a continent and we never go anywhere, Lauren. <laughs> I can yeah, have multiple like reasons. Just, like had the ocean next door and just chose not to. <laughs> okay, no. speaking of jellyfish, though, have you seen like those caves where they have all of those totally harmless jellyfish that you can swim with? That sounds freaking amazing. That's what I want to do. I've never heard of that. No, I have not heard of that, but I kind of want to. I heard of this type of jellyfish that evolved to swim upside down because it lived in caves and it was like because of the way the light source was. So it's got like, it's kind of, it's very mushroom shaped. It's got like a central stalk and then it's got its hood, but it goes upside down. So it's got the round part on the bottom kind of pulsating. It's very cool. Jellyfish are also going to take over the world. Of course. It's terrifying. Let's move on to Lauren's talk. Urine myth I want to clear up. Urine isn't purer the more clear it is. Your pee still contains all the waste products mentioned, no matter how much water you drink. The concentration levels are different, yeah, because your body is eliminating all the excess water you've put in it. But it will never be dilute enough to be safe to drink. I was just going to say, like, you can't see things like diluted sodium and diluted potassium and things like that in standard concentrations. And if they were in a concentration that was high enough that you could see, you are in trouble. (laughs) So tonight we've learned about don't drink bleach, don't drink pee. I think these are pretty safe topics. 
Always ask someone you love before you put anything in your mouth. For the record, if you have any kind of like kidney problems, any kind of kidney injury, drinking urine is going to accelerate that like nobody's business. Oh, yeah. You're making your kidneys work really hard to reprocess all of that waste and filter it back out again. In conclusion, it's time to flush this myth that drinking urine has any health benefits at all. I get it! Stick to basically any other liquid, except bleach. Anyone who tells you differently is just taking the piss. Oh, now I get it! Okay. You could not hold back, could you? Nope, it came out like a torrent. They are (laughs) incorrigible. No! I got plenty more. I'll just keep making pee puns. I I know you do. I know you do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That was fun. Thank you, Lauren, for that very important pee essay. I feel like we should note, though, like, it's not that dangerous if you're doing it in, like, a consenting kink thing. Like, you were kind of judgy earlier. Yeah, I know. It is, but don't it feed is, it to your children's friends for fuck's sake! Like, oh my god, children. yeah, it's it's dose dependent. Like, it's definitely not the worst thing in the world to drink, but it is not good for you. Yeah, don't drink it like as a habit. You're right, Ashlyn. I was a little judgy. My tastes lie elsewhere. I'm just saying, like, we we shouldn't like make out like we think it's equivalent to drinking bleach. No, <laughs> but don't <All> right. do it. <laughs> yeah, please. All right, Jim, are you ready to tell us about liberation therapy? I am. What do you all know about multiple sclerosis? It sucks. Correct. Ding, ding, ding. What do we have for Johnny? When I had my eye sparkle friend, I had kind of half convinced myself I was going to be diagnosed with MS, so I read a lot about it. It's very scary. So multiple sclerosis is a chronic autoimmune disease that affects the central nervous system, that is to say the brain and the spinal cord. In MS, the body's immune system attacks the myelin sheaths that surround the axons that connect neurons together. So I'm going to be explaining a little bit about the way the nervous system works. I'm going to try to use sort of lay language, but let me know if I get in a little too deep. Myelin is extremely important. Neurons need to be able to send their signals a long way. Let's say you're walking, you're taking a step. The neurons responsible, their cell bodies, are in the primary motor cortex of your brain. But those neurons have axons, which are like extremely long tails, that project all the way down your spinal cord to the lumbar region, where they then pass the signal on to second-order neurons that carry the signal to the muscles of your legs and feet. So, like, we think of cells as being really small, right? But your neurons are actually single cells that are, in some cases, as long as your arm's breadth. All a nerve is, is a whole bunch of axons bundled together, these tails of neurons. So those axons, as I say, are pretty long. And the way the signal is transmitted is via changes in electrical potential controlled by ions flooding in and out of various parts of the cell. So you don't really need to understand what that means. But yeah, this is probably too much biology. I'm going to try to keep it as simple as I can. But the crucial part is that the signal that the nerves send isn't an electrical signal. We think of the way the brain works as kind of electrical signals, but it's, it's not a circuit like the way we usually think of an electrical circuit, where electrons are actually flowing from the brain down the spinal cord at what is essentially the speed of light. It's actually a bunch of ions that are charged flowing in and out 
of the cell kind of like sideways and their motion is propagating. So you can, you can kind of think of it like, this is a pretty crude analogy, but think of it like you're at a hockey game and you can either have a signal move around the arena by having everybody stand up in their seat and walk around the arena. That's kind of how a circuit would work, like an electrical circuit. Or instead, you could have people stand up and do the wave. Johnny, uh, maybe we got to do one of those waves. So some people stand up and then the people next to them stand up and the original people sit down and the people next to them stand up and those people sit down and like that. And the wave propagates around, but all the people stay in the same place. And that's kind of how our bodies transmit neural signals. So the way it works is when one part of the axon detects changes happening nearby, it responds by opening a bunch of gates. It stands up, if you will which is then detected by the next part of the neuron down the line, which also stands up. In the meantime, the previous part of the axon gets immediately tired and sits back down as a refractory period. But the signal, the parts of the axon that are standing, just keeps on moving down the line. Just like doing the wave, this is actually a pretty slow process because actual ions are moving in and out of the channel physically. It's not like it's not traveling at the speed of light like an electrical signal. So one of the ways the body tries to speed this up is with myelin. Myelin is a fatty sheath produced by oligodendrocytes in the brain and spinal cord. That is, it's produced by Schwann cells in the peripheral nervous system that surrounds the axon and works as an insulator. And myelin actually kind of prevents the transmission of a signal. Now, you might be wondering how something that doesn't transmit the signal helps make the signal go faster. Allow me to explain that by complicating the analogy. So imagine that you're going to a stadium right now. Okay, don't do it. Don't go to the stadium. That would be a very bad idea. Don't do it. But imagine that you really, really need to see a Winnipeg Jets game right now or something. For, for some reason, you want to go to the stadium. Omicron be damned. Don't now, drink bleach. Don't drink yeah. pee. And don't put things in your mouth when you don't know what they are. Don't go to stadiums. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, the people who profit from having butts and seats at the stadium, they're going to try to convince you that it's perfectly safe to go to a Jets game, right? They're going to employ physical distancing after all. That's enough to keep everyone safe, right? So they've blocked off every, like, they blocked off two seats out of every three, let's say. So everybody's spread farther apart. So no one can sit right next to you. So when you're doing the wave, there are fewer people around to transmit the signal around the stadium, right? As a result, the wave will actually travel more quickly around the stadium. Even though the people are farther apart, they're close enough that they can still see when the people next to them have stood up. And when you stand up, the next people to stand up will be several seats over instead of right beside you. So the signal skips over the intervening, that is to say, myelinated seats. That's called saltatory conduction. And it's how your nerves speed up nerve conduction. Does that kind of make sense? Maybe? Yeah, yeah, a little it bit? does. Okay, so that's the basic idea. Myelin, which insulates our nerves, it helps the nerves conduct their signals more quickly. And it's not just about movement either. I was talking about taking a step, but myelination is also extremely important for sensory and cognitive function. All of, of our axons, uh, all of our neuronal axons are myelinated pretty much in a normal person. So myelin is really important also for coordination. Most of the movements we do are complex. After all, it involves lots of movement and lots of sensation. When you're walking, you're moving a bunch of muscles in your feet, your leg, your hips, and your torso. You're moving your arms to keep your balance. All of that needs to happen at the same time in a coordinated way, right? In a demyelinating disease like MS, you have significantly impaired coordination. Some of these signals 
have to travel farther distances than each other, right? The signals for your shoulders to move don't have to travel nearly as far from your brain as the signals for your toes to move. So if some of these signals are traveling slower than others, or even if they're all equally slow, but they're all slowed down and some have to travel a much longer distance, you're going to have a lot of trouble coordinating your movements because some of the movements that are triggered at the same time will end up happening at wildly different times, depending on how far away they are from your brain. And walking, for example, also depends, as I mentioned, on, on sensory inputs. So if sensation is slowed down, that's another problem. You won't feel your foot connecting with the ground until long, longer after it has actually made that connection. So that's kind of the problem, the ultimate problem that is happening in multiple sclerosis. You're losing myelin, and it will often start in one organ, like in your eyes, for example, and then kind of progress to other connections in the central nervous system to other parts of your body. And in some cases, multiple sclerosis is continually progressive, while in others, it has what's called a relapsing remitting course. So it gets worse, and then it gets better uh, for a bit, and then it gets much worse again, and then it backs off a little. But generally speaking, those with MS have progressive weakness and fatigue, problems with coordination. They have cognitive impairment, sensory impairment, trouble speaking, and a host of other clinical syndromes. The disease is immune-mediated. It's an autoimmune disease, but the ultimate cause of MS is uncertain. Or is it? In 2008... Dr. Paolo Zamboni, a highly respected Italian vascular surgeon, described a condition he called chronic cerebrospinal venous insufficiency, or CCSVI. Using a new specialized Doppler ultrasound machine, Zamboni demonstrated that some patients with multiple sclerosis had reduced drainage in certain veins in their neck, which he claimed would result in iron deposition in the brain. This iron deposition triggered an immune response and then subsequent degeneration of the myelin sheaths leading to multiple sclerosis. So, the veins in your neck can't drain your brain, blood gets backed up in your brain, the iron comes out, gets into your brain, your immune system goes, what the heck is going on? Attacks your brain, and multiple sclerosis ensues, okay? That brings us Makes to sense. so-called liberation therapy, which is Dr. Zamboni's treatment for chronic cerebrospinal venous insufficiency. For liberation therapy, Zamboni has just repurposed a well-known procedure called venous percutaneous transluminal angioplasty, or venous PTA. Sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In which a balloon catheter, which is a flexible plastic tube with an inflatable balloon at the tip, is inserted into a vein. Air is blown through the tube, inflating the balloon, and the inflation of that balloon forces the walls of the vein further apart. The balloon is then deflated and the catheter removed, leaving behind a widened blood vessel. And in some cases, you can place a permanent stent that way to hold the vessel open if needed. So as I said, this is a well-established procedure. It's often used in cases of uh, arterial stenosis or venous insufficiency. But the question is, does it treat multiple sclerosis? Well. It is certainly less plausible than Dr. Zamboni would have you or his patients believe. The link between decreased venous drainage and MS wasn't actually a new idea, but instead one that had been proposed back in the 1940s and subsequently discarded. While it is true that iron deposits are disproportionately found in patients with MS, a similar phenomenon is seen in many neurodegenerative conditions including Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's, that have no relationship with CCSVI, his proposed mechanism. 
Although the connection between MS and cerebrospinal venous insufficiency is also heavily disputed, as Zamboni's original study was unblinded, had no control group, and he failed to disclose the fact that he had financial ties to the company that manufactured this special ultrasound device that he was using to detect CCSVI. Wow. In any event, many other researchers have pointed out that dysregulated iron metabolism is actually a much more likely culprit for the excess iron found in the brains of patients with neurodegenerative conditions than a disruption in venous drainage. But Dr. Zamboni is a vascular surgeon after all, and I guess when all you've got is a vascular hammer, everything looks like a vascular nail or whatever. I wrote this segment in a bit of, bit of a rush, okay? Give me a break. But just, like, this is you in a rush? He's being a liberal with that term. Uh, but there, it's not like there's a lot of free-floating iron in the blood anyway for it to just get deposited. Like, it's not that simple. That, yeah, that isn't it all stuck to our blood cells? Like, a lot of it or other trans things like transferrin and things like that. Like yeah, it's, it's in heme, it's attached to transferrin. It's, like, it's not just floating around ionic iron for the most part. There's a bit, there but is. not a there's lot. There is some, yeah. It's quite low because yeah. it would be bad news if there was a lot. It's super corrosive. <laughs> it's bad. I mean, there are conditions like there's hereditary hemochromatosis. There's other forms of hemochromatosis where you, you got lots of iron flow in. It just it causes all sorts of damage to your organs. Yeah. Like, remember when Lauren said the pee gets all the rust out of the body? It doesn't. That would be the rust in your body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you all sound so smart. The last thing I heard about, like, Hemo was Hemo the Magnificent, the film strip I watched in grade four. Hey, Doc, not to change the subject, but where does this magnificent hemo do most of his work? In the veins or in the arteries? He does no work at all in the veins or the arteries. Well, where does he do it? So, <laughs> you're all having this wonderful conversation and I'm learning a lot. Thank you. <laughs> in any event, follow-up research has not been able to demonstrate any association between the so-called CCSVI and multiple sclerosis. And the CCSVI hypothesis fails to explain the epidemiological findings associated with MS. In addition, multiple sclerosis does not appear to be associated with any of the hallmarks of venous pathology, any of the hallmarks of having a problem with venous drainage, which would include hypertension, infarction, edema, all, all of this making a cause like CCSVI unlikely for multiple sclerosis. Okay? It, it just, the clinical picture does not fit remotely at all in the slightest. And this is something that a vascular surgeon would be expected to know, right? Okay, so CCSVI probably isn't the cause of MS. But, but what about a lawyer? Would a lawyer know? <laughs> that is not the question I was going to ask. The question I was going to ask was, could treating CCSVI treat MS anyway? Well, Dr. Zamboni certainly seems to think so. And he's managed to convince a whole host of patients, particularly Canadian patients, that it can. So how did this happen? Well, in 2009, a team of Canadian journalists dug up Zamboni's study and published a story highlighting his chronic cerebrospinal venous insufficiency hypothesis. Predictably, the idea of a maverick doctor who may have just discovered the cause of a debilitating but mysterious disease instantly took off. Off the back of this breathless reporting and the resulting pressure from patients' groups desperate for a cure, in short order, the MS Society of Canada had offered $2.4 million for research into Zamboni's CCSVI idea, which kicked off seven different studies that were done. 
According to Dr. Michael Resminski, a neurologist at McGill University, quote, Had there not been the fevered publicity, no one would have thought it was necessary to spend the millions of dollars to do all of these studies. While this liberation therapy was never approved by Health Canada, for many years patients have been flying to Italy and elsewhere and forking over thousands of dollars for Zamboni's still experimental neck vein widening treatment. To quote CBC, some insist it has changed their life. Many of them say it did nothing. An unfortunate few died from post-surgical complications. At this point, many non-Zamboni researchers have studied liberation therapy, and the majority have found it wanting. A 2018 Cochrane review found three studies that had actually compared Zamboni's procedure to sham treatment, which involved inserting an IV but not actually pushing in the catheter and inflating the balloon to widen the veins. While the Cochrane Review concluded that the procedure was largely safe, it was essentially worthless. Quote, We found that venous PTA did not provide benefit on disability, physical or cognitive functions, relapses, or quality of life. Venous PTA has proven to be a safe but ineffective treatment and cannot be recommended in patients with MS. All trials that were ongoing were either terminated or withdrawn, so this updated review is conclusive. No further randomized clinical studies are needed. Ooh, not even no further research is required on anything. That is the final coffin. Yes, that is, wow. that is so incredibly rare. But this you is were... really surprising because there was never actually any evidence that this worked. Yeah, and you. even if it's safe, like quote unquote safe, as you said, a few people died. Like it's not 100% safe. No. There's a downside. Heart attack, ah, bullshit, chest pain. Who gives a fuck about that? Death, I got to wait, wait, death, what? Wait, whoa, wait, what, what? It is still a surgical intervention, right? Mm -hmm. Balloon catheterization is not without risks. As you're talking about this, I think one of my former co-workers' wife thinks she had this done. They had to travel away for treatment for her MS, and she had some promising developments and then completely relapsed afterwards. So I oh, think this is I'll, what she had done. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, for because of this fluke of it being a bunch of Canadian reporters who took this story and ran with it when it had just been published in an Italian journal. In Canada, it was particularly, like it was a fad, basically, for yeah. 10 years. And there was actually one bunch of my classmates and I had some meetings with our dean last year because one of our sessional instructors, I think she was running some tutorial groups, was actually involved in this liberation therapy and ended up being censured by the college. And she had a bunch of non-disclosed conflicts of interest where she was making money off of it. And it was really Yikes. awful. And then they had her teaching us and we obviously were not pleased with that fact. Mm -hmm. um, she ended up changing her name and everything. So not a good sign. And you said this was a big fad in Canada, but doesn't Canada also have like a really high rate of MS compared to a lot of other countries? Aren't we like number one? We are relatively high. There are a lot of things about MS and other autoimmune disorders that are, it's not clear exactly why they are true, but autoimmune disorders tend to be more prevalent in more developed countries. They also tend to be more prevalent in women than men by a two to yeah. one or three to one ratio. Yeah. So, yes, I don't know if we are number one, but we do have a high prevalence of MS compared to other people. It's still quite a rare disease. Yeah, I know two people personally who have MS, and I don't know a lot of people, but I've heard of other friends of friends and like a co-worker's wife, etc. I thought it was a much higher prevalent disease. 
I had an aunt who had MS. To quote Dr. Resminski again, Anybody who knew anything about MS knew the idea was nonsense from the get-go. One of the members of the Institutional Review Board that approved one of Zamboni's studies wrote an article for the journal Medicine and Law describing her experience serving on the Ethics Committee. I'll quote from her paper briefly here. Quote, This approval, given after an animated discussion amongst IRB members, lacked any solid scientific evidence of a causal relationship between CCSVI and MS, and was accepted despite the concerns about potential risks associated with the proposed therapy. Undoubtedly, considerable pressure was exerted on the IRB by MS sufferers who rushed off to get the surgery from the many clinics who offered liberation therapy. So, if it doesn't work, why do people think that it does? Why do people want this treatment? Well, as I mentioned at the top, MS sometimes manifests with a relapsing remitting course, with disease flares interspersed with remission. One of the things that we know about diseases with relapsing remitting courses is that patients are most likely to seek treatment at the point when the disease is at its worst, at which point a natural remission may be on the horizon. It's kind of like the evil twin of the Sports Illustrated curse. Why do athletes who grace the cover of Sports Illustrated so often fall from grace shortly thereafter? Well, sports performance is often a little bit random, and if you're having an unusually good year, you're suddenly a rising star who would make a great candidate for the cover. But if you're having an unusually good year, you're probably going to regress to the mean at some point pretty soon. When you're doing unusually poorly, that is often followed by going back to doing your normal amount of well. When you're doing unusually well, same deal. If you were going to touch on also the fact that like the placebo effect gets more powerful, the more invasive a procedure is. And this is basically as invasive as it gets. Yep. That is very true. And studies have shown the placebo effect. People report greater relief when their pills are more expensive, when their pills are more brightly colored, when their pills are larger, when they're getting injections instead of pills, when they're getting surgery instead of injections. So this is a major procedure with a huge expense. So people are more likely to not necessarily feel better because the placebo effect is very complicated, but to report feeling better at the very least. There is a bit of a coda to this story. The final nail in the coffin for liberation therapy was laid by a pretty definitive study out of the University of BC. And since about 2018, it has significantly fallen from grace. In fact, Dr. Zamboni admitted that it may not be the perfect treatment for all people with MS. Which is or any. Oh, he unbent that. <laughs> but just... Very recently, we have some news about MS. We may now know what causes multiple sclerosis. Just a week ago, as of this recording, Harvard published a study announcing that they had discovered the primary cause of multiple sclerosis. Could it be... According to researchers at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, the culprit is the Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, a virus in the herpes family that has long been known to cause infectious mononucleosis and certain cancers. This correlation between EBV and MS was well known, but one of the challenges in identifying EBV as the cause of MS is that MS is very rare and EBV is incredibly common. As many as 95% of adults in North America are infected with Epstein-Barr. 
But this study manages to make a strong case for causation. Like chickenpox and other herpes viruses, EBV is never fully eradicated, but instead goes latent, hiding in the depths of the nervous system, then re-emerging later to stimulate the immune system again. Researchers have identified this pattern as a likely trigger for the immune responses that snowball into autoimmune attacks that eventually result in demyelination. Unfortunately, herpes viruses are hard to fight. Though we do have a vaccine against varicella, the herpes virus that causes chickenpox, we currently have no way to prevent EBV infection. But Alberto Escherio, the lead author on the study, remains hopeful. Quote, An EBV vaccine or targeting the virus with EBV-specific antiviral drugs could ultimately prevent or cure MS. Just like mm. unbelievably exciting. This is going to be one of those things that they do a This Podcast Will Kill You episode about in 20 years, and they'll be like, and there it was all along! <laughs> saw the study on Twitter, and did I actually scream, Ashlyn, or did, you, did I just... <laughs> I, I, I did a little flail to tell Ashlyn about it, because it's so exciting. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Jem. And thank you for ending on a note of hope. Maybe we will see... The end of MS, maybe not in our lifetimes, but maybe in your kids' lifetimes. That'd Even be exciting. a broken clock is hopeful twice a day. Yeah, like maybe it'll become like HPV, where like this could be the last generation who needs to deal with like a lot of cervical cancers and stuff because most people will get vaccinated. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. You know. Speaking of staying hopeful and not talking about vaccination rates, let's move into our something nice. Well, I'm afraid I'm going forward? to have to talk about vaccination rates, yeah. but I don't have to go first. Okay. If you want to go first, go right ahead. Yeah, you got it all set up. Yeah. So speaking of not talking about vaccination rates, my something nice is I spent a lot of time vaccinating people. Yeah. Over the summer, as I, I think I've mentioned, I did a bunch of first and second doses. I volunteered at a vaccine clinic out in East St. Paul and gave people their COVID shots. And that was great. But this last month, I've been working at the RBC Super Center in downtown Winnipeg, and I have given hundreds, maybe we'll, by the time this comes out, maybe it will be thousands of booster shots. And it is a really rewarding experience. It's hard and the days are long, but it's the kind of helping that I was hoping to do when I decided to get into healthcare, and it feels really good. And the kind of assembly line setup they've got is quite something, and it has me gliding around lines of people in a wheeled office chair. They give you one of those wheelie chairs to push yeah, around, yeah. Pushing around, yeah. shooting myself backwards, doing IM injections. It's great. Yeah, we got our shots. We had, there was the nurse going around with her wheelie chair and the other person following with the carts. Good setup. Who wants to go next? Okay, I guess I will then. <laughs> you both have to say something. Do we, though? Do we? Yeah, you do. It's good for you, Laura. Uh, okay. I know. I was thinking about this today, and my something nice is... I know I, know I talk down about the internet a lot, but our chat group, we have a... Ashlyn and I, and a handful of other friends of ours we have a basically a queer mutual support group where we send each other silly memes or 
talk about what's troubling us or talk about our good things. And it's really helped me get through not even just like the pandemic, but just day-to-day life. So I really wanted to lift that up and talk about how supporting each other makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. Ashlyn? I celebrated yesterday the fact that I have worked out six days a week for two years and I yeah. haven't skipped a day. Wow. I don't know how I became that person. <laughs> uh, pandemic and able to work out in your living room. Yeah. 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 You found uh, that works and that you don't hate. And <laughs> I joined in January 2020. So the vast majority of these workouts have been via Zoom in our living room. I got a ridiculously sweet yoga mat for Christmas. It is 15 millimeters thick. And so I can actually do the ground exercises now without like wrist pain. And it's so nice. <laughs> it's great. It's also huge. It's yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like the size of side. two yoga mats beside each other. So I can, it's, it's big person size. That's great. Yoga blanket. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, where where do you store something like that? I imagine that must be challenging. We just roll it up and stick it in the corner behind the recliner. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. fair enough. If you have a free corner, makes sense. Yeah, no one's coming into our house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely in the best shape of my life, even though I have not given my all on all of these workouts, let me tell you that, but I did them. <laughs> and now I can do a lot of things that I couldn't do before, so that's pretty that's nice. Awesome. That's great. That's a significant accomplishment. Good for you. In addition to workouts, Ashlyn's also been walking and doing a lot of other cardio day to day. And we're planning maybe an overnight hike in the summer. So that'd be cool. Exciting. Mm -hmm. Dependent on acquiring a lot of extra equipment that we don't have yet. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Laura, you're up. Okay. I had two things and I've forgotten one. Oh, remembered my first something nice is that i convinced the children to eat not one but two different cakes that had sour cream in them and they liked them yay which is a big thing for our our kids and the other thing is i read a book that was quite enjoyable it was called the karen feeding of ravenously hungry girls it was a quick read it kept the pages turning and it was a lovely story about a family going through hard times and it has some really hard but helpful in some ways depictions of eating disorders actually so if you're triggered by that be careful but it is something that presents it in a way that is not the stereotypes that we might hear and i'm doing a lot of learning about that subject right now so it was it was a good read i'm very glad i read it very cool we'll have to check that one out So what are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? Next month, we're going to cover birth control, and we're hoping that Dr. Teal Bondaroff will join us again. So join us for that. Thanks very much. And thank you all for joining me for my one-off of hosting. I really appreciated it, and I had a great time. And say goodnight. You did too. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Again, if you listen to this in the morning, that's not our problem. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. 
Original music is produced by Ian James. And this episode was edited by Marissa McCool, who you can find on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. You, don't you put it in your mouth. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, we have to put that in. Oh, Marissa yeah. probably doesn't know that. I'll have to find oh, the yeah, YouTube. Oh, yeah, that's a Canadian thing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that's a Canadian thing. Don't you put it in your mouth. Never been more apt Don't you stuff it in your face. Don't you stuff it in your face, though. So okay, it might okay, look good to eat. That's good. <laughs> oh, I can still do that whole thing. Get sick. Ick. Real quick. Real ick. Ick. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh, oh all right. We're That's my segment done. Heard from those PSAs. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good uh, good transitional music between the segments, I guess. Yeah. Hang on so a second, you... Lauren. There's a kid's timer going off on an iPad in an undisclosed room in the house. The children <laughs> like to set random timers. Like frequently Huxley will set like a 23-hour 59 minute and 59 second timer to see what happens in a day just just i don't know so sometimes it'll be like midnight and there's a timer going off i'm like good god the best part is that they uh i have had to teach kira multiple times how to actually turn off a timer and alarm because what she always does is just swipe the notification away which snoozes it and every like nine minutes (laughs) like it just goes off again and i'm losing my mind (laughs) doesn't take much no i especially want to know why it's nine minutes and not 10 minutes that for some reason just is the extra step that pushes me over the edge it's <laughs> your segment for next month figure out why it's nine minutes I, it's like that uh, that notification that like uh your food is done in the microwave and it just keeps beeping until you go and get the food i i hate it i know i'd rather have cold food <laughs> I would rather my house burn down than hear that yeah. beep one more time. I've never had a microwave like that. It sounds like hell. Yeah. Our current one does not do that. Oh. All right. Oh. That's the end of me. Good for you. <laughs> I like might it. might be the end of me on this, on this podcast. <laughs> no. Never. They talk about piss. <laughs> Please do. Wait, wait, wait. Should I get a snack for this? Is it going to be a while? Uh, yeah, uh, buckle up, everybody. I'm going to I'm going to teach you some neurobiology. <laughs> Will it be liberating? Um, I'll, I'll I'll try to make it as fun as possible. Uh, so. So who's hosting next month and what are we talking about? TBD. It's Jim's turn, isn't it? I don't know who hosted the one before this. Impossible to know. Let's not look it up. <laughs> <laughs> The one before this was the scams episode. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like that might have been Jem then. Yeah. The one before that was Cryptids. It's awesome. Oh, you know what we should do? We should see if Dr. Teal will come talk to us for two hours again mm-hmm. about birth yeah. control. We should do birth control. Yeah, that's what we should do. All right. Okay. I'm going to say that in abort. Well, you have to say, what are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? And then I'll say it. If you don't know just what it is, remember, boys and girls, don't fall.
灣。